Are you looking for ways to optimize your health and performance and take your running to the next level? Well, look no further than Inside Tracker. Created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT, Inside Tracker provides a personalized health analysis and clear recommendations, plus an action plan on how to live healthier, longer. For those with heart health concerns, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now also includes a test of APOB, which directly measures the concentration of plaque building particles in the bloodstream to give you a clear picture of your cardiovascular health status. You'll receive important health insights along with a personalized analysis and recommendations for all 44 tested biomarkers. For Doctors of Running podcast listeners, you can get 20% off of an Inside Tracker order today by heading to insidetracker.com/doctorsofrunning. Don't wait any longer. Take control of your health and performance today with Inside Tracker. Visit insidetracker.com slash doctors of running. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Docs of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today, we are not just myself and Dr. Matthew Klein, myself being Nathan, uh, but we also have an amazing guest that we've gotten to know over the last month or so. We got to be on her podcast, and now we have the honor of having her join us. Um, we have Coach Elizabeth Scott. She is the founder um, and head coach for Running Explained, and we are so excited to glean her wisdom. Today is all about her bread and butter, which is Q&A. People, I feel like you can tell more about how this all started, but I feel like what I go to you for is people's questions answered. And you've just been an answer seeker and explaining things in really clear, concise ways. So um, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So we on our podcast, we always start with a subjective. And because we're going to be answering a lot of questions and kind of hopefully sharing some wisdom uh, from Elizabeth that she's learned over the years, we wanted to ask you all uh, our subjective for the week, which is what is the best running advice you've ever gotten? So you can share that below in the chat um, or reach out to us at docsrunningpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and that can be advice from a running friend, but also from a coach because we are bringing the coaching perspective in tonight or today or whenever you're listening. Uh, so so let us know what the best running advice that you've ever received. So Elizabeth, I want to turn it over to you and just tell us a little bit about how you got into coaching and how Running Explained came to be. Yeah, no, this is a really great question. So um, if you if you know anything about me and if you don't, here's the crash course. I started, I grew up athletic and then took a big detour in my 20s because I was drinking. And then I quit drinking and I started becoming athletic again and that meant uh, starting to run. And I signed up for my first 5K to hold myself accountable. I wanted to lose some weight and yada, yada. And, and within six months, and I would never, ever recommend anybody doing this. And I know one of the questions today is about this. But within six months of starting to run, I had run a 5K, 10K, half marathon, and a full marathon uh, in a decent time. Not all, oh. not all four days in a row, right? But within six months, <laughs> I had covered all four of those distances um, it, to, to some pretty, uh, you know, in, well enough that I was like, oh, man, I'm totally hooked. Um, but like many new runners, I made a whole crap ton of mistakes that uh, in in learning more about the sport and starting to read books on coaching and learn about the science of the sport, I was like, oh my God, like why did nobody tell me that I shouldn't be redlining every single run that I go on? Why did nobody tell me that running mm -hmm. a marathon six months after I started running was like maybe not the best idea and that pain on the outside of your knee, that's called IT band syndrome, baby. So I really started running explained after being a runner for a couple of years because I basically didn't want anybody to go through what I had been through as a new runner. I didn't mm -hmm. want, I didn't want other people wherever they are in their running journey, if they've been running at a super high level or they're literally brand new to feel like they were alone, that they had a place where they could ask all those random questions that pop into your head on a run and maybe get some answers. And some of the stuff that we talk about, you know, it's like not inexplicable, but what the one thing I do love about running is that there is a part that you can't explain just because it's so yeah. magical and ephemeral, but there is a lot that you can explain. Um, and that's how I started. That's kind of where the idea came from. And I started the Instagram account, like just doing like cute, like live Q and A's Instagram live, uh, every week as like people would ask me questions and it just, it just snowballed from there. And then people started asking for training plans and for coaching. And I figured, well, I may as well make this more formal. Um, so I took some coaching certifications, was glad that I did, didn't learn much that I didn't already know. So that was a really nice kind of validating thing for me um, and started working with athletes. And that was about three years ago. 
that's really exciting. And I think that's an interesting topic. There's certifications everywhere and there's value to make sure you're not way off base. But if you've been doing your due diligence and learning about running and the way you did it and approaching questions, you get to learn a lot before you go into that kind of formal space. So it can just reinforce some stuff. So that's really cool. So talk, it's kind of rolling into your coaching side of things. Cause you kind of have the like community educator and then you have like the run coach um when it comes to run coaching what would you say is your coaching philosophy how do you approach coaching with runners um and that could be you and i know you have a lot a big team that coaches with you um and do you share similar philosophies among you or are they different yeah i mean the reason i have the coaches on my team i have six uh, amazing coaches who are part of my coaching team now who work with athletes one-on-one um because i can't i can't do everything as much as i I do try, um, is that our, our approach to the sport is very similar in that, you know, it's about seeing the runner as a whole person, right? Not just a, a, a number, right? Like, oh, how fast can you run? It's like, no, we're working with moms and dads and brothers and sisters and, you know, like people who have jobs and, or they're in school, like they're not professionals. Um, and so, you know, seeing the runner as a whole person and, so much about coaching is helping people get out of their own way. And we can talk about training intensity distribution. We can talk about easy days, easy. We can debate the Norwegian lactate threshold workup, all this stuff. And we can, that like, that's all, that's all only part of it. Cause the other part is really just helping a person chart a path forward in a way that's going to be sustainable and enjoyable for them. And for everybody that looks mm-hmm. a little bit different. Um, but it really is about like, it doesn't, it, it can be a challenge, but it doesn't have to be feel like you're just banging your head against a wall all the time and not understanding mm-hmm. how to move forward and in helping them make good decisions in training, not bad decisions. So yeah, it's yeah. about help seeing runners as people first, helping them get out of their own way. And at the end of the day, uh, this has happened quite a lot in the past couple of years, helping runners become better people through their running. Mm, that's really cool. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing from you is there's all these different theories of how you can train to achieve certain goals. And some people might say high mileage is the way. Some people might say low mileage is the way. Some people might say this certain training, you know, blocking through periodization is the way. For you, you're okay with grabbing any of those as long as it fits the needs and kind of design of that person that you're working with. Am I hearing you right kind of in that? Yeah, and kind of absolutely. And I think this is where a lot of – um I will, I honestly, I think a lot of newer coaches get really bogged down in the, you know, when you learn about something, it becomes like the most important thing. I remember, and I did went through this too. I remember when I, the fair, when I first learned about 80, 20 running, right. This running principle that says 80% of your running should be easy and 20% should be hard. And I like took that and I was like, Oh, exa- like I was doing weird stuff in my training to make sure that I was like hitting exactly 80, 20 splits is before I like became a coach is when I was still making like weird yeah. mistakes. Um, but the point is that although we do have a framework for endurance athletics and sports science, how that applies to an individual is going to look different from person to person depending on Mm -hmm. what their phase of life is, what their goal is, how old they are, how long they've been running. All of these things need to be taken into account. And although pre-written plans and kind of cookie cutter uh, options are are fine for many people, right? Kind of like you can go into a Banana Republic and maybe those clothes fit you great, but they're not going to fit everybody, right? And so that's when it really comes down to finding the best system for an individual athlete when you're working with them. It's fantastic. And so in that, what, when you think of your coaching side, I know that you have all of the things that you do, but what's the day in the life of a running coach and your running coaches are for you and for them, are y'all doing the coaching full time? I know you're, you have a lot of hats or is it kind of this thing that people are doing on the side? What's the day in the life of a running coach, I guess is the question. Yeah. So my day is probably a little bit different because this is my full-time job, not just being a coach, but I have my Instagram account and I have my podcast and I have my private client roster and I do group coaching, right? So I'm a full-time Fit, running professional, which is kind of weird to say, uh, even yeah. now, um, the coaches on my team are all, they all have regular jobs, right? Actually, uh, one yep. of, one of my coaches, Amanda Katz is a, a, a fitness professional, but 
the run coaching is just one part of what she does in the rest of her life. Um, so for me, you know, I, I think people get this idea of like, Oh, a running coach, like you must be like out running all the time or like running with your clients. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> 99% of my job is sitting behind a computer and, doing research or reading or programming for my athletes or doing business admin or interviewing podcast guests. Right. So it is, it is just very much like a normal 21st century job. And I live on my computer. Um, and I, that's another kind of misconception. I think like, Oh, if, if you work with a running coach, you need to work with your running coach in person. And the only people I really know who are working with their athletes, like in person, on a regular basis are probably elite teams, right? If you're a normal runner like me, like you guys, right? We're regular people and you're working Mm -hmm. with a running coach, 99,000 times out of 100,000 times, it's going to be a virtual relationship. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that comes with the territory these days. Yeah, it's pretty. And the fact that we have the technology to do that is pretty cool. Um, and I, I, the reason I wanted to ask that and our team wanted to know is because I think it's one of those jobs that could be glamorized a little bit. So it's nice to just like, this is actually, you're just doing a lot of grunt work. There's, <laughs> you gotta I mean, get, and there's it's, no be substitute. Fun, but it's, it's, it's very rewarding. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. one of the reasons I think I like my job specifically so much is that I've, I've always been the kind of person who likes to do a lot of different things. Like I like to record and produce my own podcast. I like to make graphics that are educational. I also like to do research and read papers and I also like to work with people, you know? So if I were, if the only thing I did all day was just sit behind my computer and like give feedback on final surge, I think I would lose my mind. Right. Um, but (laughs) (laughs) so you gotta, you know, kind of make a schedule that works for you. And when I'm feeling inspired, I can do this. And when it's, you know, I'm not, I can do something else. A lot of people assume that that you're going to be able to, you know, that, oh, we're going to be able to do this in person. But the problem is what what's wonderful about being able to do this virtually and to reach out to people is now people have access to the incredible minds like Elizabeth, like many, many others out there that normally you wouldn't be able to get. So having grown up in, you know, the mountains in a little smaller town – that those resources aren't always available. And so to have that is actually phenomenal to get that kind of feedback. And then again, it's going to take time for you to develop those relationships. So it's very cool that you're able to take the time to go, this is more than just running. This is a relationship. This is, like you mentioned, trying to build more out of who you are and not just how many miles you can do. So I think it's a great resource. Yeah. And so, yeah, it might, you know, some people... I don't know. I think that that relationship piece is one that may or may not be there with, when you have an in-person coach just because it's kind of assumed. And so you get to have a very different avenue. I think that's very normal in today's very virtual world. So And it is about right. the relationship. I mean, when I, you know, I do the intake for all of our one-on-one clients and and then I set up a second meeting with the coach who I think is going to be the best fit for them because it is about the mm-hmm. relationship, right? It's not just about, oh, this person has done similar things to what you've done or, oh, this person, you know, Know, I don't know, shares the same other hobby, but it's about, do I think their personalities are going to fit, right? Do I think their communication styles are going to fit? Um, Cause that's really, you know, if for anybody who has worked or is considering working with a coach, it really is, you don't have to be best friends, but you have to have a good working relationship. You have to be able to come to them with questions. You have to feel like they're listening to you and you have to feel like the person who is guiding you on this journey is somebody who you can trust. Um, now it does go both ways, right? You have to give as well as take. It's, it's very frustrating yeah. to work with clients sometimes, you know, we're not mind readers, especially not in the virtual environment where we have trouble picking up on body language cues and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, at the end of the day, it is about fostering and developing a relationship, uh, in this space. And I think what, what I value so much about your philosophy and your approach and what you've talked about it morphing into this thing, it's how can we become a better human through running? And there's so many analogies that come through running that are just pictures and and like things bubble up in running that are actually symptoms of other things in our life that just like we get, we approach it when we hit a certain wall in training or some frustration or some joys. It's like, why did I respond that way to that disappointment? Or why did I respond that way to not feeling very good on that run? And a lot of times those are just those symptoms of something bigger in life that they get to work on. And I think that's the beauty of your philosophy is you're there to help them get out of their own way and to help them learn more about who they are. And I, so I just really appreciate that. Uh, just to give a little overview now, we're going to kind of transition into the next part of the podcast. We have 
a lot of questions. Some of these are questions from people that from from followers we put out a Q&A request this week. Some are also from our team, just questions that we've been mulling over and we think would be fun to talk about. And all of these questions could probably be their own uh, podcast. And that just means we probably won't get to exhaustively dive into every question, um, but maybe for a future time. And I also think it's a launching pad to say, I bet you Elizabeth has talked about this on her podcast at some point, because that's what it's about. So consider this like a flavor of these topics. We might end up diving deeper into some than we expected, because that's just how we roll. We're pretty go with the flow and authentic. Um, But we're going to start with questions regarding training, and then we're going to finish with questions regarding racing and everything in between. So Here's our first question, and it's kind of a banger. We're starting with the bang. Um, what would you say are your favorite workouts for thing for a 5K, for a 10K, for a half marathon, for a marathon? What kind of workouts are your favorite? Oh, man. Right off the bat, this is like, oh, how much time do you really have? So here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you're training for a specific race, right, you have to not only consider what your experience is as, an, as a runner overall, um, but the, what your goal is on race day, right? So if I'm working with a, a newer runner who is running their very first marathon and our goal is to finish and have a really enjoyable race, their marathon training is going to look completely different from somebody who is trying to run a sub three marathon. Um, and so when we talk about, oh, marathon training or 10 K training, like as I kind of referenced before, we have a, a framework for what we know about creates fitness in these different, uh, in these different situations, right? So if, if I'm trying to get you from A to B, I generally know how, what things to do that will help get you there, but it depends on where you are kind of in the huge grand scheme of your journey. Um, now I think one of the, maybe the, the, to give you something other, other than it depends, I think the gut reaction to a lot of these questions is like, oh, well, clearly the best workout for, for, uh, these different races is, is race pace, right? Oh, clearly the best workout for a 10 K must be 10 K pace. Actually, that's not necessarily true. Um, Mm -hmm. in training, depending on what you're, you know, if you're training for a 5k or training for a marathon, anything in between, you will likely not do all that much work at race pace or race effort until you are getting very close to the race itself. And even then it's only one of the workouts that you may include in your training week. So this is a very challenging concept for a lot of people to understand because they think, well, if I have to, if I'm going to do this on race day, I have to practice it in training and what you're doing in training as an endurance athlete. And yes, a 5k is still an endurance race. What you're doing in training is helping your body to develop all of the systems that it needs to be able to do the thing you're trying to do on race day. So no, you may not do a whole crap ton of marathon goal pace workout in your training, but you know what you're going to do? You're going to run a lot. You're going to do very long (laughs) runs, not too long, but long runs. You're going to do a lot of things like lactate threshold work, one hour rate, you know, one hour effort, one hour race space. You're going to do things like critical velocity. You're probably going to run some hills and you're going to be running a lot, right? May you throw in some marathon pace work in there? Absolutely. And for me personally, I like to introduce that in midweek workouts first rather than long runs because I like you to be able to run marathon pace on fresh legs and on tired legs. Um, but yeah, so that's the whole thing. So if you're, if you open up a training plan that you found on the internet and it's heavy, heavy, heavy on, on race pace, right? You're running, you know, if you're training for a half marathon and on week three, you're already running a whole bunch of half marathon pace work, I would be really cautious about whatever that plan is and maybe consult with a coach or um, find a different plan because that, that doesn't sound like it would be a right fit. So I, I love how you explain that. And one one question I have in terms of when you work with athletes, I think one of the hardest switches to flip is doing your long runs slower than you plan to do them. Because I know for myself, when I was training for my first marathon, I I felt like I actually ran my long runs faster than I wanted to run my marathon because I wanted to be confident that I could do it. So if I, I would think in my head, if I run like a minute per mile slower than my goal pace or minute and a half or 30 seconds, whatever it was, how, how do you, how do I think I could do that when the race comes? How do you help athletes, not from a physical training standpoint, how do you help them get over that mental hurdle of being okay, not doing your long runs at marathon race pace? That is such a common 
issue and not even just long runs, but about training in general and Mm. slowing down, right? Oh, how is running in my easy zone going to help me race in my, in my racing pace zone? Um, you know, Nathan, what you experience, it's same thing. I'll I'll run more than my race distance. So I know that I can finish. If I run 28 miles, I know I can finish a marathon. I've, I've seen weirder things. Right. Um, and it, so it depends on the athlete and kind of what the specific concern is, but Mm -hmm. sometimes I just like to walk them through some of the science behind why training is set up the way it is. If they want to get really granular, I'm like, here, I have some papers, like actual published articles. If you'd like to learn more, I have training books. Like it's not just me spouting some crackpot opinion. It is the body (laughs) of literature that is supporting what we're trying to do here. Right. And so, you know, it doesn't often come to this and I don't, I do not like to coach this way, but Sometimes I will then a day say, look, you know, you hired me to help you and let's just try it for a couple months. Let's get through this race specific training cycle and see what happens. And if you feel like it's not working for you or you didn't get, you know, what you're looking for, I understand you can go back to doing what you were doing before, but let's just give it a shot and see what happens. I think that's great. And as much as I hate the Philadelphia 76ers, um, actually, I don't hate them that much except right now they're kind of rivals with the Bucks. They, they've they had this mantra, like, trust the process for a long time. And that's kind of what you're saying is, like, there's a lot of science behind this. It might feel counterintuitive and different. Try to trust the process and see how it works um, and see if it can start to create the changes that we know it will if you if you give it a shot. And it just, unfortunately, as you've as you know, it takes time. I would say the better terminology is trust the system. So, you know, you have Elizabeth here who knows – all these different systems and how you put the no trust the puzzle right how you put all this together and that doesn't mean picking like the one thing and thinking hey this is it right and that's where the you know the question of what's your favorite workout it's going to depend it's going to depend on what part of the training cycle they're in what what they're ready for and then most importantly what i'm guessing what they can recover from because how easy is it to recover from a 28, 30 mile long run? It's not. You're going to get injured and then you're not going to run the race. So that makes sense. And that's, you know, all kudos to you for explaining that because it's got to take a lot of patience on your part. And then again, you are teaching the person beyond running how to go, hey, let me help you see the bigger picture, which is really important where people often get lost. So and that bigger picture is sometimes hard to be patient for. And that's why I said, I mean, part of what we do is help, you know, help runners get out of their own way, left to our own devices. And I think everybody's you guys and everybody's listening to this podcast can probably understand this. Like we have a tendency as endurance athletes to probably do or want to do way more than we need to. And when we talk about training, the most effective way to train is to do as much as you need to, but no more. Where is that line? Everyone, it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. It's really hard to quantify, but it is not about doing as much as you possibly can. It's about doing a very specific amount of work that is going to spur adaptations. And that, as Matt said, you can also recover from in a timely fashion to then get up the next day and do it again and do it again and do it again. And that's why it really is about the system, putting the puzzle together, but also just taking it day by day and not letting any one workout or bad run derail you. And I've seen that happen with a ton of runners. Well, they'll have like six weeks of fabulous training, have one bad day and go into an absolute tailspin. And, you know, that's, it's common, but I think it's really important that we keep some perspective about it's not any single day in training that makes Mm -hmm. or breaks your entire cycle, unless you do something absolutely boneheaded, like run 30 miles in training for your marathon, right? That would probably tank (laughs) tank your cycle. Um, but then you just, right. I know. Like, like, please don't do this. (laughs) Um, but it, it really is about just putting it day by day by day, right? There is no shortcut. You cannot, it's, uh, there's a Chris McClung says so that you cannot microwave your fitness, right? There's no Amazon prime for your aerobic system. You have to do the work. And sometimes it just takes way longer than you want it to, but that's just part of the process. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but uh, this was another question that we got fielded. It's a pretty popular question in the the world of running right now. And it's the question of how slow should my easy miles be? Because you were talking about, we were talking about that slowing yourself down and running slower than race pace. So how slow should those miles be? Yeah, this is tough. And I I don't know if it's, some people get really confused about calling them easy, right? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. I... Running is hard, right? And I think if we say, like, oh, it's an easy effort run. Well, in the spectrum of runs, for some people, it might feel easy relative to other runs that they do. But I will say this. For the average 
person, statistically the average person in North America, their easy effort zone is going to be a walk. Yep. And when we talk about running in your easy effort zone, that is actually a skill and a system that you may need to spend some time developing. And that time may need to include walking as in using the run walk system. Now, if you are more genetically gifted and you have no issue running in your easy effort zone with very little training, that's awesome. Congratulations. You already have a leg up, right? That's literally run with it. Um, But if you, (laughs) if you are listening, you've heard about easy effort running and you're like, well, if I have to run in, in this zone that I've, you know, calculated based on my heart rate or based on my paces, right? I would be walking and that's, that's okay. Through the process of spending time in our easy effort zone, we increase our aerobic capacity and essentially get fitter and more efficient in that zone. And that translates into being able to run faster in that same zone. So over time, your easy effort walk or run walk will turn into more running, less walking, and eventually one day into 100% running. So there really is no such thing as too slow if you are in the right zone based on where you currently are in your fitness. Now, I will say there have been in the years that I've been doing this, I've told two people, two, one, two people that if they wanted to, they could probably run a little bit faster on some of their easy days because they were spending everything in their easy days down in zone (laughs) one. Now, I'll be honest with you, not many people can run in zone one, right? So it's technically the zone below easy effort running. So I was like, if you wanted to, you could probably bump that up just a little bit. You don't need to run six minutes slower than marathon pace all the time. Um, But yeah, there's no such thing as too slow if you are in the right zone. And so what I like to tell people is this is easy is is an effort zone. It's not a pace, right? We can use pace as a guide. We can use heart rate as a guide. If you are in your easy zone, it should feel relaxed. It should feel conversational, right? Maybe not monologuing like this, but you could call somebody and talk to them without needing to stop and catch your breath. It is a pace you could feel like you could do for a long, long time. Now, if you're new, a long, long time might be 30 or 40 minutes. If you're experienced, a long, long time is going to be hours. Um, So all of this to say is that this really is going to be the foundation of your running. And the more that you enjoy it, settle down into it and learn to embrace this, you're going to feel a lot better overall because you're not working harder on days where you shouldn't be working harder. And you're just going to I don't know. There's a meditative quality about easy running that once you really get into it, it's like, oh, why did I ever choose to run harder than this on days I didn't have to run hard? Totally. That's a really awesome answer. And I I have so many questions off of what you said. I think I'm going to stick with two of them. One of them is you talked about these adaptations that happen where you might transition from walking to walk running to jogging. Those um, kind of metabolic and aerobic adaptations, um, obviously it will differ a little bit for everybody, but is this like a three week process? Is this a six month process? Is this a five year process? Like what sort of expectations should runners have for progression through easy runs and just kind of building of those systems? Yeah. So I will say this, it's going to take longer than you want it to. It just will. Yeah. Um, if you are expecting, <laughs> oh, but I started running easy effort a couple weeks ago. Why am I not super fast now? It's not how it works. When we're talking about developing systems, like you said, making those metabolic changes, part of the, what we're doing in this sport is actually changing parts of our biology and our physiology and our biochemistry. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that we know that specifically running in your easy effort zone, so below your aerobic threshold does, is it helps... Um, uh, with your, uh, build more mitochondria, right? So powerhouses of the cells, right? So if you have more powerhouses, you can create more energy. It means you can run faster and you, uh, create more capillaries that bring nutrients and blood and oxygen to those more mitochondria in your skeletal muscle fibers. Now, obviously building blood vessels doesn't happen overnight. Building more mitochondria doesn't happen overnight. And we're talking about, you know, just a, a little dose, you know, we, we do a little bit dose and we get a response. We do a little bit more dose. We get a response Right? those adaptations we're doing, we're going for a run and then we're recovering and in the recovery process is when our body's like, Hey, you did this thing. I'm going to build some stuff to make it a little bit easier to do next time. That happens, you know, day over day, week over week. So when we're talking about these real serious, I'm going to finally see them show up in, on my Garmin kind of changes, we're talking months, in most cases. And in the long term, we're really talking years. 
honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really tough thing for people to, to, uh, to understand is that, you know, but this is a really cool thing. You should never put an end date on what you're trying to do, right? If you're saying, oh, but yeah. in three years, I'm going to be at the top of my game. Oh my God, I hope not. I hope you keep progressing. How cool would it be if you just kept trying to get better and better and better and like never gave yourself an end date for when that was going to happen? So I really encourage yeah. people to looking at this, not as like a scary open-ended process, but as like the start of like, you don't even know where this is going to take you. Just like enjoy the ride and see what happens. But yeah, it's going to take longer than you want. I promise you that. Yes. It's it's a running the beauty of running is it could be a lifelong sport. And I that's that's be. that's one Hopefully. of those things that I encourage people that I work with as a physical therapist is don't don't just think about the race you want to do in the fall or the spring. Like this is a years long process. Like don't put all your stock on this one thing. Um just because those adaptations take a long time and then all of a sudden I say all of a sudden what I meant to say is all of a sudden, years later, <laughs> what was so hard for you three years ago is what you can do any given day, which is just a, a really, that's when it's cool. It's like climbing a mountain where you walk for three hours and you look in the peaks still just as far away as it was. But then you look back and you're like, oh, I have climbed a long, long way. It just unless you look back um, and you have to have enough time to be able to look back. And it just, it's a, it's a, it can be hard to stay the course. My other question when you were talking about easy running was related to heart rate. Cause you talked about how you can find like that zone, how much stock, and this is kind of a shift a little bit, but how much stock in general do you put in heart rate data and heart rate based training? And what about like on our GPS watches, Garmin, Koros, I'm sure there's others that do this, but those are the two I have experience Polar. with. Polar. But they just tell you, like, you need this much time to recover. This is how fast you're going to be able to run your race. Like, they have the race predictors. Here's your VO2 estimation. What kind of stock do you put in that, and how do you approach heart rate? Matt, what do you want to say before we let Elizabeth Am I the over? only person that when Koros or Garmin tells me you need to wait this long to recover, my first thought is, no, I'm going to go for runs sooner just because <laughs> it goes against what you told me. But that also might be my first thought. contrarian in you, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. So ask... I like to cause chaos. Ask me... Okay, so put a pin in that second question. Um, yes. Because I probably will forget. Heart rate. Yes. Yes. So here's the thing. I find massive value in using heart rate in training for a variety of athletes. And I use it myself personally. Is it for everybody? No, not everybody cares to train by heart rate. That's fine. We have other ways that you can understand your training. We can use pace and perceived effort and conversational ability and like blah, 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 blah. Um, but for using heart rate, if you one have your data measurement system set up correctly, right? So if you are getting your heart rate data, not from your optical sensor on your watch, especially not Apple watch, but you are getting Mm -hmm. it from a chest strap or an armband. Um, so you know that it's reliable because optical heart rate sensor data, although it's, it is seem to be, does seem to be getting better. It's still not reliable to a place where I'd be comfortable using it. And you understand your individualized heart rate zones. You know where your maximum heart rate is. You know how where your ventilatory thresholds are, right? You are like, okay, yes, this is my easy zone. This is my lactate threshold heart rate. I know all these things. If you have all those set up, heart rate is an invaluable tool. And I have a ton of resources in in my world. And I have a whole masterclass on heart rate zone specifically. It's something that I do a lot of work around because for so many of us recreational, non-professional athletes, you know, you're out there on your own doing your own training. Nobody is there holding your hand. Nobody is forcing you to run at a certain pace or a certain effort, but heart rate holds you accountable, right? So if you're, if your heart rate is in zone four and it's supposed to be in zone two, that, that's pretty black and white, right? That's pretty obvious that you're, you're not in your easy zone, right? Or if you're, you know, can you use um, uh, heart rate data from races or workouts and kind of get some back calculates information, get some more information there. So I do find it an incredibly valuable tool for many athletes. But again, the caveat, you have to make sure that the data you're looking at is uh, right, right? <laughs> and you have to make sure that the zones that you are personally using are accurate for you as an individual. You're not just assuming that the Garmin preset zones are correct, and you're not assuming that the data you're getting from your Apple Watch is correct. You've actually done the work to understand how to use this training tool. Right. So actually, I have one, one more question in that. Do you... Um... 
do you utilize the same, if you have an accurate system to measure and you know a lot about your own zones and you know your true max and all of those things, um, do things change with heat? Like if it's hot or if you're stressed or like if there's other things that are playing into heart rate changes, how do you kind of encourage your athletes to listen to that or deviate from it? What, how does that play a role? Yeah. So heat definitely plays a role. Heat, humidity, right? Heat is stress on your body. And so anything that adds stress is going to increase, you know, your heart rate. So people get really confused about, oh, it's summer now. Why is my heart rate so high? I'm like, well, because you're stressed and your body is spending a lot of resources trying to cool off. You just need to slow down, right? So if you slow down in the summer, or in the winter, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, that's normal. You should do it. If you're running way slower in the heat and humidity, um, that's normal. You should do it. Um, but one of the things I love about using heart rate is that once an athlete, take a couple months, right? But once an athlete has become accustomed to understanding where their different kind of effort zones fall based on where their heart rate is at any given time in training, they know that, in, or they're starting to learn that intuitively. Right. So the goal Mm -hmm. of using heart rate in training is not to be glued to your device for the rest of your natural life. The goal of using heart rate in training is to help you help teach you what different things are supposed to feel like. So then you can just go do them without having Mm -hmm. to be glued to your watch all the time or glued to your heart rate. And that really helps runners understand because at the end of the day, although heart rate's a guide and pace is a guide and we're really trying to get you to understand is what it feels like right? And mm-hmm. and how hard you can push or when you need to back off or all these specific things. Um, and I never advise using heart rate in, in racing. But so if you can use heart rate as a tool to get you to understand what it's supposed to feel like, then that's the end result of using heart rate in, in training in most situations. So that's super good. So you're, instead of telling the runner, hey, focus on staying in this heart rate zone, you're going, use this as feedback to help you figure out where you may or may not need to be right now. I like that, which is kind of where from the RPE scale came from and kind of how they, they are they, for those that know this, that, you know, if you've ever done VO2 max or stuff like that, it's are the rate of perceived exertion. These different levels are supposed to correlate with heart rate. And oftentimes in the science labs, they'll often get really focused on these numbers, but that's not what it's about. If you ask any of the elite athletes, like especially the Kenyans and Ethiopians who are very much about this whole feel thing, and there's some, as you know better than we do, there's tons of good evidence on how important rate of like what you feel and learning that is for optimizing your efforts. So you're using it as a tool, not necessarily in the way people would think, but going, how do we help you learn more about you? Which goes back to, again, your kind of who that, 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 uh, concept of who what you're trying to really coach people yeah that's and that's cool. I mean, and it, it, it it might be in the beginning right especially working with an athlete who is really unsure about where their easy zone is and it's like actually no like you're not allowed <laughs> like to, if it if your heart goes above <laughs> this like you just let down for a walk but the the whole point of it is to grow out of that right it's like taking the training wheels off um but i love your kind of comment about rpe and rate of perceived exertion because i want to dial in on on one of the words in that is that's perceived perceived exertion, right? So if you are a person who's never experienced the full scale of perceived exertion, that you are Mm -hmm. by default working with a a misunderstanding of the different exertion. And so there's another phrase used called intensity blindness, right? So you are blind to the true intensity of your effort. And this happens a lot with runners who've never spent any appreciable time in their easy effort zone. And they have been running everything, you know, kind of moderate, moderate, hard, and they slow down to still moderate, but not easy. And like, but it feels easy. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It feels easy compared to what you used to do, but it's actually not easy enough. And that's really when heart rate, when it's like, I have to slow down that much to be my easy zone. Yeah, you do. (laughs) You are not, you're, you were getting close, but you weren't even quite there yet. So that's really, it helps Mm -hmm. kind of, um, if we're using RP, we think of like RP as a rainbow, like using heart rate as a guide can help you basically like draw in the full rainbow and be like, Oh, that's what it's supposed to feel like. That was awesome. So I want to ask you one more question off something you said, and then we'll go back to the watch question about race prediction and all that kind of stuff. Um, you said you don't use heart rate for races, and I just thought that was a really interesting statement. Can you just give us like another little thought on kind of why you choose not to do heart rate for races and what that means for your athletes? Yeah. So on race day, you are trying to do something that you've never done before, hopefully, right? Run farther, run faster, do something hard. 
and your heart rate is going to be high. And if you, if we've done our jobs correctly, it's going to be pretty high for a while. Now, depending on how high it gets and how long it's high for, it depends on the length of your race and how, how fast you're running, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, for when oftentimes we're using heart rate in training, um, for the most part in, tra- in, on a run, you're likely going to be using heart rate to stay in your easy effort zone. You may check your mm-hmm. heart rate occasionally in some workouts, right? If you're trying to like steer the threshold workout, but like, I don't want to exceed my threshold. Um, you may be able to check in on my heart rate, but in the context of training, we are often in the run attempting to keep our heart rate low. And I find that runners who, and I've done this per- per- personally in, in races and it's totally freaked me out. If you are then in a race environment where your heart rate is supposed to be high, that's the point, right? Because you're working hard and you see your heart rate, it actually, it, it can backfire on you because it can freak you out because you're conditioned to think lower is better. Not that it is, it's just in how you use it in training, you know, yes. lower tends to be better. And then and you're racing a half marathon, you see your heart rates in, you know, zone four. Oh my God. And it gets in your head. And for many of my athletes, I advise them to take heart rate off of their watch faces entirely when they race. I don't even want you accidentally like looking at it. I just, I don't even want, we'll look at it afterwards. We'll analyze the crap out of it afterwards in the race. It serves no purpose for you to under, to need to know that information. I, and that's why I wanted to come back to it. Cause that exact story happened to me when I was out running my marathon, I'd been doing a lot of, you know, heart rate based training. I get out there, I'm like six miles in and I looked at it and I'm like, crap, I'm way out of my zone. Like, how am I supposed to do another, you know, 19 or whatever, 20 miles, whatever the math is, that's should have been the easiest math. Now, how am I supposed to do another 20 miles? So yeah, it's, it's a huge mental game. It can be a huge mental game. I, I got it. Elizabeth, I love that to like have it just turning the watch off there. Cause I feel like, and I've noticed this at races where people are just stuck to their watch. What happened to the art of racing? People forget that you were, you've done all this hard training. Now you get to just even take the watch off and go. This is an experience. And yeah, it's probably going to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, you're probably not running hard enough, right? Like that's, this is, I, I love that. I, I don't know. That's just my weird off comment. Enjoy the art well, of racing. It's, it's something you have to learn. It too. is. And I think that what you are commenting on is probably going to feed really well into my answer to Nathan's question about watch yeah. metrics. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, because we're all looking for these guarantees, right? I want to be told, oh, hey, guess what? I can guarantee you that this is what you're going to do on race day. Well, there are no guarantees, right? And I think it's really hard when you get into this sport and you, let's say you're newer and you're progressing. It seems like every time you go for a run, you're setting a new PR. I remember when I was new, like every time I do a workout, I would set like a new 5K PR, like a new fastest mile, right? That slows down eventually. Um, but we're looking for these like guarantees. I put in the work. I want my guarantee. And we then t- tend to turn to our devices, who which are... It's, purporting to give us like, oh, I think you, I think you could run a half marathon in this based on your recent, you know, workout. I think that your race pace is this, or I think that your VO2 max is that, or look, first of all, you don't know that the input that the watch is using those algorithms is even accurate. And that's kind of my number one issue with the optical sensor on your watch, which is one of the primary data points for all of these predictors or metrics that you're getting from your watch. If you can't even trust that the data that your watch is measuring is accurate, how can you trust that the output is accurate? And I also have issues with the algorithms that they use for those types of things in general. Your VO2 max on your watch is not your actual VO2 max. It's an algorithm that's based on your heart rate and your sex and your weight. If you want to know your actual VO2 max, you need to get the test in a lab, period. Like there's no, you just can't. And they've done studies on the validity of watch um, VO2 max measurements and lab VO2 max measurements. And like, they're not even, they're not even close to being the same. Um, So the next time you freak about your VO2 max going down in the summer, it's not like you're just running slower because it's hot. (laughs) um the race predictor thing your watch tells you you're detraining and yeah your watch is like yeah unproductive (laughs) training i hate that you have paid 200 dollars for this small device to say feel bad about yourself yeah that's actually so i switched from garmin to koros last year this is totally i bought with my own dang money are we all koros team koros i i don't think we're all i don't have it on but i i bought my own too last year so one of the things Mm -hmm. that sold me on the koros was not only the battery life is freaking amazing 
but that they didn't have all these weird other algorithms. Like, I don't care about my heat adaptation score, Garmin. I don't care about all this other. I just wanted something where I could like (laughs) track my runs, program in workouts and like, that's kind of it. It syncs with my polar heart rate strap and I'm a happy camper. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. The race predictor thing. I ran when I ran my marathon PR a couple years ago afterwards, I was wearing, I raced with a Garmin afterwards, my Garmin updated and it, it was like, we think you, oh, you're a race predictor. We think you could run a 340 marathon. I was like, I ran a 333 yesterday. So yes. try again. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. for, for me, it's, I, I went and I ran a marathon and I like squeaked under 330 by 16 seconds. And my watch was like, you could run a 302. And I'm like, you have no idea what just happened to me yesterday. I I almost <laughs> died. I almost like passed out in a porta potty. Like you have no idea. So uh, I uh, it's taken with a grain of salt for sure. The algorithm you didn't do life. you didn't do the the extra bit the extra variable which is you know the yes no it's a for the pass out in porta potty. It's a very important thing. <laughs> just added. It's very. It would have updated if you just said <laughs> oh to enable porta potty. <laughs> yeah, pass out. Uh, that was, the, was partially How many times moment. did that happen during the race? At least three. Okay, well, you got to factor that in. Yeah. That, that was right. and I, great. I mean, and I mean, so anybody, this is this is turning into an infomercial, unsponsored on my end infomercial uh, for Koros. I paid less yeah. than two hundred dollars for this watch, and it does everything that I need it to, and I it does a whole bunch of things. It doesn't do the things I don't want it to. Right. So I think sometimes when we look at these fancy gadgets, whatever the gadget is, whether it's your foot pod or, you know, whatever that you're using, um, you know, the data is only going to be useful to you if you know how to use it. And I think that a lot of of consumers are being sold a bunch of data they don't need, but being told that because they can measure it, it must be important. And honestly, it's just not. Yep. And I think it can lead to paralysis by analysis for people and my opinion, if you need to rely on the company of the watch to tell you what that means, you probably shouldn't use that data. Like use data that you know what to do with it before they tell you what you think they think you should do based on like things that it gets from your wrist. It's just so dangerous. And obviously we're physical therapists and it tells me that I could go run a marathon today because it says race predictor. I could go run at whatever time it says. And I definitely couldn't. That would be one of the worst decisions I could make. Um, And on that note, the next question I have for you is when it comes to new runners, um, and maybe not even new runners, but people who want to do a marathon for the first time, how much time do you need to run before running kind of your first marathon? What's the minimum amount of running someone might need to be ready for one? This is a good question. Um, There are a lot of I want to say just variations between people about how much running an individual is going to be able to healthily tolerate in and how much time it takes them to build up to a certain volume. Okay. So when I said at the beginning of this episode, then the first six months don't do what I did, but I ended up running a marathon six months after I started running. Um, I am a very durable runner. I do not get injured easily. Right. Um, I have a genetic uh, predisposition towards endurance sports from my parents, and I did get injured. I got IT band syndrome, right? So I didn't come out of this unscathed. Having run four other marathons at this point, I will say there is no substitute for being well-prepared and being well-trained. So although you may be able to finish a marathon on low volume or truncated training, I would still recommend that you respect the distance and take the time to build up to the distance properly. So if you are a runner who is, let's say you have a comfortable base of around 20 miles a week, you, you know, you've raced a couple half marathons before, maybe in training, you've gotten to 30 to 35 miles per week. You would probably be able to train for a marathon in four to five months. If you are a new runner, if you are coming off the couch, if you have run no farther than three miles at any given time, I would recommend that you take probably four or five months just to build your base before you even start thinking about training for a marathon. And it's also very important for you to understand, and this goes for everybody, experienced and non-experienced, is that um, the type of training that you're doing needs to 
be in line with what you're trying to achieve on race day. So if you are a newer runner or you're a low volume runner and you are running your very first marathon, you are likely to be finishing a a just finish or I call them finish strong style plan. It is basically entirely volume building. The only focus is building your endurance. There are no workouts, right? We are just trying to get you from the start to the finish. If you are expecting to run a crazy fast result following that kind of plan, um, you are probably going to have a, 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 how we say, a mismatched experience of your expectation versus reality. You are likely to go out way too fast on race day. You're probably going to hit the wall. You're probably going to be in real pain by the end. But if you're, if you are okay with just finishing strong, you're going to have a good race day experience. As you become more experienced in racing any of these distances, you're going to be able to tolerate more training, right? Assuming you're giving yourself proper recovery time between races and with all your training. Um, But all this to say is that I'd really, really, really like you to respect the distance, give yourself time to train properly, and always make sure that your experience and the training plan that you are following based on your current fitness is in line with what you are trying to achieve on race day. Now, if somebody came to me and said, you know, I'm running, I'm a moderate volume runner. I've been running 40 to 45 miles per week for a couple of years. I've, you know, run a couple of marathons. I want to hit a huge PR out of the park. I'd say, okay, cool. Do you have time to train the way that you would need to, in order to hit these PRs out of the park over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months? And they say, no. Then I say, you need to revise what your goals are, right? So it's not just about what you can currently handle with your, with your body, but how much time do you have to allocate towards the pursuit of this goal? Yep. And that's, I think that's a big part of, and I would say that's a huge service to the people you work with, because if you kind of like drag them along on this goal that they have, that isn't something that would be wise or reasonable. Um, it's better to face kind of how this process works up front, um, and, and work with people on that to set reasonable expectations so that you don't just get disappointed. Um, week after week after week. And you're like, I need to be, and then you're like, I need to be here, you know, and expectations based training is really, really brutal. Um, so I I have a couple more training related questions and then we're going to flip over to racing. Um, but one of them is about kind of that I, the idea of burnout. So somebody was asking, what, what should I do when I feel burnout? Should I push through with the plan or is it better to stop and pull back? Um, and burnout is obviously a nebulous word, but, um, what do you, what do you have on that kind of thought? Yeah. So I never, ever, ever recommend pushing through burnout. Um, now it takes a a relatively experienced athlete or just kind of somebody who's in tune with their body to understand if what you're experiencing is generally is genuinely burnout, or if you're just really fatigued, if you're in the end stages of your race specific training cycle, if you're training for a half marathon, a marathon, you're doing this for a couple months, a couple weeks till race day. Yeah. You're going to feel pretty fatigued, right? It should be manageable. You shouldn't be dead to the world, but you're going to be feeling the months and the miles that you've been running burnout. I tend to see, I tend to see burnout manifest first in an emotional way, right? It doesn't show up in training right away. What it shows up first as is kind of a vague sense of dread about going on runs. Be like, oh, I don't want to go on that run. And not just like one time, right? We all have days where we're like, I just don't want to do that today, right? Yeah. But this is like, <laughs> I kind of went through that today. I was like, I don't want to go on my long run today. I did it anyways. But it's more of like that. <laughs> it's like this persistent kind of dread or anxiety on runs that really have no business being ones that you would be dreadful or anxious about, right? Oh, I really don't want to go on that five mile easy run. Oh, uh-oh, why, right? Is there something else going on? Um, burnout is... Uh, kind of, I don't know if it's a palatable way of saying it's a mismatch between how much you're expending and how much you're recovering. Right. And so we, we have to remember that our training does not happen in a vacuum. Although there may be training related factors that can contribute to your, the overextension of your resources and basically depleted yourself. Mostly this is not running easy enough on easy days is the number one thing burnout. I see that's training related, But if you also have other extenuating circumstances in your life going on, if you are not sleeping well, if your job stress is super high, if your kids are sick for the 85th time this year, right? Um, If if you're not fueling your body, if you're under fueling relative to your output, that can cause low energy availability, which is a a really kind of clinical way of saying actual burnout, like your body is 
you know, starving. Um, so yeah. So if you are experiencing these symptoms of burnout, I don't want to do this. Right. So it starts from, I don't want to do this and you do it and you're like, Hey, this is okay. But like, I still don't want to do it the next time. And then eventually if your run starts suffering, you really need to back off. There's nothing wrong with taking an unplanned rest day. And I would so, so, so much rather a runner be proactive in their recovery. This is not a failure mm-hmm. of training. This is you being proactive in your recovery. Take a day off, take two days off, take a week off if you really need it. Right. That is going to yeah. result in a better outcome than you pushing through and breaking down. And that's going to be a real yep. problem if we get to that place. That's huge. A week off does not reverse. Detraining doesn't start till after that. So just it's okay, <laughs> which is so hard when you're working really hard on something too. It's hard to swallow that reality, but I, that's that's awesome advice. Um, okay, final training question. Um, it's about Strava. Somebody wants to know: Should I use Strava? Is the question. And for people who don't know Strava, it's a um, social media platform for runners that posts your runs up on social media on, on Strava, and you can give people kudos. You can title your runs. You can add pictures. You can do all this stuff. Um, should 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 we use Strava? What are your, what's your take on Strava? So I definitely think that you should be keeping a training log. Okay. So whatever that looks like, if you're using, you know, your native, if you're using Garmin or chorus as your training log, if you're being coached, maybe you're using final surge, maybe you're keeping an actual journal. Maybe you're keeping a spreadsheet, what you ran, how fast, you know, heart rate, kind of how you felt, right. Weather, if you fueled, blah, 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 kind of stuff. Strava, I think, is an extension of the conversation we're having about watch metrics um, with the added mm-hmm. I would say the added issue of performative pacing, because now not only are you having feelings about, you know, what your watch is telling you, all of a sudden you realize that people are like the runs that are faster are the ones that people comment more on. And mm-hmm. the, oh, that person titled that, that an easy run, but oh my God, I couldn't even run a 5k at that pace. Should, should I be running faster on my easy runs too? And yep. I, I think if you're, I mean, it, it just like any other social media platform, it can be mm, abused by somebody who is, um, it may, it, not even, I, you know, I, I'm gonna say this. I think that it's going to be very hard for most runners to use Strava responsibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's two, there's two parts to it, right? It's both how you interact with other people's stuff and what goes through your head as you put your run up on Strava. If that's even part of the conversation in your head, it's worth thinking about if it's valuable to you. I've, I've um, had more than one person say to my face, Oh no, no, no. I just, I didn't want to run too slowly on my recovery reps for that workout because I don't want my average pace to look too slow on Strava. Like, oh my God, we, this is like, talk, we, this is, Fire. we are in an entirely Fire. different Fire realm. Person, <laughs> like, yeah. wow, that is, and that's how, that's how skewed it can make people in how they're approaching their training, right? We don't set mm. out to do things wrong, right? I, nobody here is saying, I know all this stuff, I'm going to do it wrong anyways. Um, but it can really, it can be really insidious in how it gets inside your brain and you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to see a 10 in front of my average pace people will think right. things about me oh man yeah no if you are yeah. if you have those types of thoughts about strava you need to get off the platform just get rid of it yep. yeah 100 percent. or just make it a completely private thing where you can't see anybody but there's other ways to do that outside of strava there's yeah there's lots of i mean i have this. strava it is 100 private all of my runs, because there's also like I have issues, you know, I have concerns about like my personal safety, right? So there's another issue too. Like, yeah. are you broadcasting yep, your runs to the entire world? Like Molly Seidel had to make hers private. I have Strava. I have a Strava account. It does sync with all my runs. Um, I never look at it and I don't go on it. So yeah, it is possible. <laughs> I will say I use Strava and I have learned to get over that and don't really care what gets put up there. Um, but Hey, there's a good old Excel sheet also works really well. I use that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I, I, I miss my big Excel sheet. I had could like pull so many graphs yeah. and charts out of the data. Right. Oh, it's yeah. great. <laughs> Plus cool. with Strava, I mean, they're making you pay for a whole bunch of stuff you don't even need anymore. So oh, I refuse to pay for that. <laughs> Sorry for the, if anybody works for Strava, listen to this. I'm not going to pay for that. I, I can do that on Excel. I'm not going to pay for it. <laughs> I'm on a free trial right now. Um, they got you, huh? Yeah, they got me for the free. I, I, I'll take free, but yeah. <laughs> Is for, it free? 
Anyway, thanks for your thoughts on that. I think that's a super helpful conversation. Okay, one um, thing. Sorry, I yeah. will say. I will say. I ha- I will give Strava credit where credit is due. Is that they have contributed some very large data sets to researchers in analyzing um, some some things about specifically marathon tapering and, and marathon training data. Right. So it's from like the scientific standpoint. Right. So furthering what our knowledge of the sport, it's cool to have that much data to play with. But as an individual user, you just really, really be mindful of how you're using the platform. You've got to be in a certain place as a human to be able to interact on any social media. And then you tie in something that you're performing on. Like, it's not just the face you're putting up on Instagram or whatever. It's that plus people see how you perform a certain task. So you just got to be you got to be in a certain place to be able to do it healthy. And I don't think as many people who use it are in that spot. Um, Maybe myself included, depending on the day. So... We're going to transition to talking a little bit about racing. I have two questions for you. The first one uh, is about what we call splits. So I'll let you explain what splits are. And if you're going to go run a race, the question is, um, what's the best? Is negative splits the best? Are even splits the best? Are positive splits the best? Um, That's the question. Take it as you will. Yeah, splits. So a split is the time it takes for you to cover a specific distance. In the context of running, you most co- endurance running, you will most commonly see mile splits. And this simply means how long it took you to run each individual mile in the run that you did. So if you ran a 10 mile race, you will have 10 one mile splits in your race data. Um, and a split can be any, any duration or any distance. So if you're a fan of track, if you watch track races, you will notice that the splits that they commonly put up on the screen are going to be lap splits for the track. So the 200 meter track or 400 meter track, if you're watching a marathon, you may say that there are 5k splits, right? So this, how long it takes you to run the first 5k and second 5k, third 5k. In a race context, we talk about negative, positive, or even splits. That refers to if we split our race into half, how, do the, how does half one compare to half two, right? So if I was running, let's say I was running a 10-mile race because that's easy, right? If I'm running a 10-mile race and I ran even splits, that means I ran the first half of the race, the first five miles, at the exact same, in the exact same time as it took me to run the second half, the second five miles, right? So although the individual miles in each of those halves may have differed slightly, the first half and the second half, I ran the same, the same amount of time. In a race environment, we are typically looking for negative splits and negative split is when you run the second half of your race faster than the first half or even splits. Depending on the course profile, you may be forced into positive splits. Let's say that you're running a race that is the first half is downhill and the second half is uphill. You're probably going to run positive splits for that race, although not necessarily. You could run even or even negative splits. Um, But typically when we see positive splits, we are looking at a race strategy or a race execution that did not go the way we wanted it to. And most commonly, you will see positive splits referred to in situations where a runner blew up or hit the wall or bonked, as in at a point in their race, they essentially hit a point where they could not continue at that pace and had to slow significantly or perhaps even walk. And this is most common in the marathon. You can also happen in the half marathon. So if you see somebody who had big positive splits, that means something bad happened in the second half of the race in most contexts. So yes, negative splits or even splits are typically what we we'll want to aim for when we're racing. That's great. Um, and the final question for you tonight is... Uh, about what happens after a race. So somebody's asking, is post-race blues a thing? Um, And what have you experienced that with your athletes or what are your thoughts on post-race blues? Yeah, post-race blues are definitely a thing. Think about it. You've been training for this one, one very specific day for months, maybe even in your mind, years, right? If let's say you... You've been trying to get into the New York City Marathon for five years, and all of a sudden you got into it, you trained for it, you spent five months training, and then you raced it, and the next day you go home and you're like, now what? 
right? Yeah, of course, post-race blues are a thing. Post, post-big event blues are a, a thing for, you know, if anybody's gotten married, understands, right? You spend months and months and months planning for this one day and then it happens and you're like, oh God, is it now what? Like, is it, is it over? Mm-hmm. So yes, post-race blues are absolutely a thing. You also have to remember that directly after a race, you are in a very depleted state, right? So you are in a, in serious recovery mode, can take um, weeks to recover from, depending on the length of the race and how hard you went. Um, your schedule is all messed up because instead of running most days in preparation for this race, like you were before, what the first week after your race, you may barely run at all, right? After a marathon, you're probably taking that week off, right? So your schedule is disrupted. You're in a huge state of depletion. Um, you, there's a, a lot of, of uh, highs and lows and em- hormones and emotions that happened in your race. And so yeah, post-race bills are absolutely a thing. This is why I absolutely recommend before you even race your race, you need to have a post-race recovery schedule on your plan, or at least an idea of what your Mm. post-race is going to look like, right? So, you know, as you're used to having that structure, you can't just wake up on one day and be like, I don't know what to do. Well, you do. If you have a recovery schedule, right? Even if it's like, on this day, I will rest, and tomorrow I will go for a 30-minute walk, that gives you structure. Your brain loves structure. Um, So have a a schedule, know what's going to happen, or the vague outline of what's going to happen. Have your coach talk you through it if you're working with a coach. Um, And then it's okay to start looking ahead at what you want your next goal to be. I'm not saying you should sign up immediately for another race right after your, the race you just did, but you can start to think, all right, in the retrospective of how I'm considering my training and my race experience, how that just went, what do I want to do next? What do I want to focus on? What do I have time for? What sounds interesting to me? Right? So there are things you can do. Can't necessarily avoid it completely, but you are things, there are things that you can do to help make sure that you're not going to like just wallow in post-race depression for three months. Right. And it just feels so hard to get out and enjoy the when you do get back to running. It's hard to enjoy that. It just is it's disorienting. So I love that advice to have a plan for afterwards that you don't have to come up with it when you're in that state of disorientation because of all of the depletion, both physically, mentally, all of those things. So wonderful. Well, Elizabeth, we're so glad that you joined us on the podcast. If you haven't checked out her stuff already, I'm assuming most people have. <laughs> but if you haven't, it's great. It's a great resource. So you can see on all of the socials, Instagram and beyond, are at Running Explained. Um, she also, you just started a YouTube channel this year where she's putting her podcast, which is the Running Explained podcast. It's wonderful. Um, you can also watch those on YouTube. Um, and then her website is runningexplained.co, runningexplained.co. So you can check her out on all of those things. And um, there's just a lot of valuable resources there um, that can give you answers to some of your questions. So Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Is there anything final that you want to share before we sign off? I think the most important thing is to remember that this is your journey and nobody else's, right? So I know it's it's really easy to look at what everybody else is doing on Strava or on Instagram and say, well, should I do that? Or why am I not doing that? And like, run, run your own journey, right? Run your own race, run what you want to do. You will find the most joy if you do the things that you are doing and not trying to compare yourself to anybody else. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm excited to talk to you next time whenever that happens. Thanks for having me.